I'm going to pray, and um, then I'm going to preach. Lord, we just want to commit this time to you. Thank you that we can be confident that as we open up the Bible, you are going to be with us in that, because all of Scripture is God-breathed, came from you, is inspired by you, and it's useful for training, teaching, and equipping. And I just pray that today, Lord, as we just open up the Bible, that you would be with us, you'd help us in it, and um, life would come. Always, Lord, not just, you know, that, Lord, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Pray that this would be full of the Holy Spirit today, and uh, you would just breathe on us together, and we would just know your presence among us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the trickiest questions I find to answer is when people say to me, what kind of church do you go to? Anyone else ever experienced that? Okay. <laughs> And you think, ah, oh, and because what you have to do is you have to look at the person and try to gauge their experience because actually their experience affects how they interpret what you say. Yeah? So, if I said, oh, we're Protestant, then if someone from a very Protestant but formal background thinks, oh, okay, I know what that's like, then they come along to this. Yeah? They're going to be shocked and very disorientated. Um, you say to someone we're evangelical, some people, some people go, oh, and it seems like you've said a very meaningful thing. Other people look at you like, is there an interpreter in the house? You know, what does that mean? Um, and it's a very, very tricky, tricky question to answer. And so what I normally do is this. I, I normally say two things. I normally say, firstly, we're, just, we're a group of normal people who've had our lives changed by Jesus. Okay? And then secondly, I say, what we're trying to do is strip away centuries of ritual and tradition and get back to the Bible. That's really how I often go about explaining it. But I guess the question is, what, does, what should a church that is stripping away traditions and rituals and just get back to the Bible, what should it actually look like? Um, and there's a particular verse in the book of Acts, which I think sums it up wonderfully, and in a, concisely, and in a nutshell, and it's Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Um, now, if you've got a Bible with you, and you, but you're not used to really reading it much, you think, where's Acts? It's kind of in the second half, the Bible's in two halves, Old Testament, New Testament. The New Testament begins Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, straight after John comes the book of Acts. Um, oh, actually, sorry, can I just... If you could take one and pass them along, um, there's just some scriptures down there for you. Um, it's not it's not necessarily the outline of today's talk as such, but um, I will be referring to all those scriptures, and it's for you to dip into throughout the week if you're stuck for something to read in the Bible. So Acts two verse forty two. Should we read that? <clears throat> and. Ref- <laughs> and And they, that's the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There we go. That's the early church. So, in a nutshell, that's what they looked like. Number one, they were a devoted people. They weren't casual. It wasn't, you know, church for them wasn't a hobby. It's it's how they lived. And they were very devoted um, and the word devotion is a strong word. It, it basically means that you're kind of you're kind of set apart for a sacred use. 
And so their whole, their whole existence really was a sacred existence. And that's not to say that they were always in church meetings by a long shot, but it means that all that they did, they did to the glory of God, and they did with a view to the, the, the glory of Jesus. So they were devoted, but there's these four things they were devoted to. Number one, the apostles' teaching. Number two, I'm going to look at that in a minute and focus on that today. Number two, the fellowship. What does that mean? That means they were devoted to each other. That's all it means. Okay? They loved one another and spent time together. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, this is kind of two things in one. It's hospitality and having meals together, but it's also, um, obviously, the taking the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. And then, fourthly, they were devoted to the prayers. Now, that would be, obviously, to praying, but also to going to the temple, the early church in Jerusalem, to pray at the set time as well. They still did that. So there's those things. But what does it mean to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? What is the apostles' teaching? Here's what it is. The apostles really spent all of their teaching proclaiming Jesus Christ had come and really referring to the Old Testament scriptures, which had been written over thousands of years, and saying, look, all the promises in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming, this Christ, this amazing figure, have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, his life and his death, and he's been raised from the dead, which is a demonstration that he is the real deal, he was who he said he was. Okay? So that was really their proclamation, and that proclamation has been recorded in the New Testament. So their proclamation was Christ from the Old Testament and our record of it is in the New Testament. So it's the Bible. So the Apostles' teaching is the Bible. So um, how a church uh, demonstrates devotion to the Apostles' teaching in our day and age is that there's a devotion to the Scripture, a devotion to the Bible. Um, and today my aim is really twofold to motivate you in regards to um, the Bible, devotion to the Bible, and to instruct you helpfully in terms of ways of doing that. Okay? Because I think if we're saying... That we want to, if we say to people, we're a church that's trying to get back to the basics of the Bible, let's live it out. Let's not just say it. <laughs> you know, let's not just say it and then actually, when people come along, they think actually it's not really what they're doing, it's just something that they're saying. We don't want to, we don't want to go there. So you're up for this? Okay. The prosperity gospel has been criticized in a big way. Lately, Now, what is the prosperity gospel? It's the message that if you put your trust in Christ, you will never again experience material need and any material thing you want will be given to you. That was very, very popular a couple of decades ago. I remember coming across a church leaf at once. I haven't got it on me, actually. It's at home. I kept it because I was so struck by it. I found it on the floor. It was an invitation to a Christian conference and it was a picture of a tap. And that other tap was coming £50 notes. <laughs> Seriously. And what was the title of the conference called? It was called um, Get Rich, I think. Yeah, it was something very, very, you know, it wasn't subtle. Get Rich. It was, that was basically, and it was like, wow, this is shocking. I mean, especially the Bible says those who desire to get rich will, um, will pierce themselves as many a pain and stumble into much temptation. You think, this is the Christian conference, you know? Jesus, uh, the Bible says the love of money is all, all kinds of evil. It's just an interesting thing, but that's coming to a lot of criticism lately, and in many ways rightly so. Um, however, the Bible does promise prosperity to a certain kind of person. And we've got to look at what that, what that kind of person is, and what, the, what biblical prosperity is. So if you ch- turn to Psalm 1, there's a promise of prosperity here. Psalm is around, open your Bible in the middle and you're pretty much there. If you find yourself in Job, go forward a bit. If you find yourself in Proverbs or Isaiah, go backward a bit. Psalm 1. 
We'll read this. This is just a short psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law or the instruction of the Lord, which you find in the Scriptures. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked won't stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's let's do verses 2, 3 and 4 again. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. What will that person be like? Well, it will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, what does prosperity mean? Well, if you go back to the root Hebrew word, it means um, break out and move forward. So there's a sense of Forward thrust, advance, momentum, it's not stagnant, it's not just staying in the same old place, there's a sense of continual advancement. What's being promised here is that to the person who, number one, says no to ungodly counsel, ungodly advice, number two, doesn't hang around with cynics and scoffers and join in with that kind of thing and mockers, and number, and number three, doesn't get involved in the life of crime, but instead he has a delight in the instruction of the Lord. He loves she loves the Bible. And they, day and night, so it's not just a, 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 a kind of a ritualistic thing, oh, I've, done me, I've done my chapter for the day, you know, it's not, day and night, they're in it. They're loving it. That person will not stagnate, but will continually break out and move forward and advance. That's a promise there from God. Sound good? Yeah. Sounds great, doesn't it? It's a beautiful thing. You see it all through the Bible. You see it in Joshua. Joshua is about to lead the Israelites into the promised land. And so it's a, it's a massive moment. There's fights ahead. There's opposition ahead. There's challenges ahead. And what does the Lord say to him? Number one, be strong and courageous. But number two, do not let the words of the law, of God's law, depart from your mouth, but meditate on them day and night. And then, all that, in all that you do, you'll prosper. It's the same word. You'll break out. You'll move forward. You'll take the land exactly what happened. You see it with um, Joseph. Um, not Jesus' father, but um, the coat of many colours, Joseph. He gets betrayed by... You see, now he did, Joseph was around before there was any Bible written down. Okay, it seems. Okay? So, well, yeah, before there was any written down. So, so there's no scripture, in, but what happens is God speaks to him in a dream and he holds on to a word that God has spoken to him, and it basically ends up with him getting betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. He then gets a decent job in Egypt. He's a slave, it's a decent job, but his master's wife fancies him, keeps trying to get him to go to bed with her. He refuses. He knows God's called him. He knows God's got a plan for him. He won't do it. In the end, she cries rape, and he gets thrown into prison. And then, uh, so he's unlawfully imprisoned. And all terrible, terrible trials, but in it all he remains faithful to the Lord. He clings on to this word that God has given him. And, and, and in a day, he goes from being a prisoner to being the second in command in the whole of Egypt. See, you look at it, you think, wow, that's trials, there's difficulties. But if you, look, if you step back and look at Joseph's life, you think, wow, he's breaking out. He's moving forward. There's advance. You see it with Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, in, I think it was in Persia, 
Very horrible job, really. The reason why he was a cupbearer to the king was this. <laughs> Every day you took your life in your own hands. You had to drink the cup of the wine before you gave it to the king to check that it wasn't poisoned. That was your job. Alright? So this guy, he's used to taking his life in his own hands. He's a, he's a man of God. He gets news that Jerusalem's been broken down and it's been ruined. He weeps and wails. He fasts, he prays, and his prayers are full of scripture. And, he, and, and then God commissions him to go back and rebuild the wall. So he goes back. People try and kill him. There's um, conspiracies against him. There's intimidation. But the whole time he clings to God and clings to God's word. And they get the whole um, wall rebuilt in 52 days. Staggering accomplishment. But you see, what is Nehemiah about? He's a man of devotion, he's a man who loves God, he's a man who loves God's word. You look at Jesus. In the wilderness, now listen, fasted for 40 days. Now, if you had the ability to turn stones into bread, right, and you've been fasting 40 days, and the tempter comes along, I don't know about you, after four days, I would have set up a calf. <laughs> Forget stones into bread. Sausage sandwiches. Yeah, if I, I mean, you know, if I was a son of God, you know how it is when you when you fast and, and you just anyone done it? You fast, but you end up being more obsessed with food than prayer for the day. You've done that, and you can't get your mind off of you know what I'm going to eat when I break my fast. That whole thing. Well, Jesus is in the wilderness for forty days. The tempter comes to him. Come on, if you're the son of God, turn the stone. What does he do? Bang! He pulls out scripture. And every attack from Satan, he deals with, not by arguing and getting into conversation or dialogue, he simply quotes scripture, bang, bang, bang. And what are we told about Satan? He withdrew. He had the scripture in him. He didn't, he didn't have a Bible on him, he had the scripture in him. In his heart. Hidden in his heart. All these guys had huge trials. I mean, you know, Jesus, uh, constant temptation, opposition, pressure, but he broke out and he moved forward. Why? The man of the word. He knew God through the word. So how do we get into the word? Well, the key way is to meditate. And I'm going to teach you today on meditation. Could someone let this person in? Is that okay? Sorry. We'll rebuke her publicly later. <laughs> you know the key way to drink deep is to meditate. Now, what does meditation mean? Meditation means murmur. Okay? So the first sign of madness is not talking to yourself, it's the first sign of spirituality. Many of you will be pleased to hear. Okay? That's what the word means, murmur. And so with the word meditate, we get the idea of throwing something around in your mind constantly through talking to yourself about it. That's what meditation is. Muttering to yourself. <laughs> it just sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? That's what the word means. Now meditation, if you're a believer, is one of the key things that can bring your experience into the reality of who you are. Listen to this scripture, Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So basically what they're saying is as a believer you're no longer here, you are here but ultimately you're there. So think there. Think heavenly. That is how you begin to walk increasingly in the true identity of who you are in Christ. Ever heard the saying, that person's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use? Ever heard that saying? Reject it. <laughs> Bin it. Okay, ignore it. That is a ridiculous 
saying. The person who came up with that was either one of two things. Um, not saved, or had been hanging around loads of time with super spiritual people who have to pray for guidance before they do their shoelaces up. Do you know what I mean? And the kind of people who just do your head in because you think, man, you know, just be normal. And so I think that sounds a reaction to having just been around something weird. But listen, the man who wrote this, the man who wrote this, set your mind on things that are above. He was probably, after Jesus, the most earth, useful, in an earthly sense, person that's ever lived. The Apostle Paul, remarkable accomplishments, really. City after city, preaching the gospel, establishing churches, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. I mean, just from, wrote a good chunk of the Bible. I mean, amazing usefulness for God. And yet he's saying, set your mind on things above. And when someone who's accomplished that much says that, then you need to take it to heat. You need to say, yeah, I need to take heat. I need to listen to this. This isn't just talk. This isn't just some kind of go, you know, lives in a cave and never does anything. This is someone who's engaged on the earth. He's involved. He's normal. He's very human. And yet, he's being used by God. What's he saying? He's saying, set your minds on the things above. You see, Christian transformation takes place in the spirit of the mind. That's where it happens. Some people refer to the mind as unspiritual and the heart as a spiritual bit. That is not true. The mind and the brain are different. The mind and the brain are different things. The New Testament refers to your mind as the spirit of your mind in Ephesians 4. It's a very spiritual realm. The Christian formation, transformation takes place in the mind. Romans 12.2 says this, Don't be conformed to the pattern or the shape of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. You see, as your mind gets renewed, you are transformed as a person. When you're born again, you're given a new heart in an instant. God, not, not obviously not physically, but in a spiritual sense, that when the Bible says heart, it's referring to the seat of your affections, it's referring to your moral centre, it's referring to the core of who you are. And the Bible says when you become born again, when you become a Christian, the Lord takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. So he takes out a heart that's dead to him and puts in a heart that loves him. That's a miracle and it's instantaneous and it can never be undone. However, in order, as a person, you still live with years of ways of thinking that you've learned outside of God that need to be renewed so that you can actually um, increasingly look like Jesus and think like Jesus. And that's the renewal of the mind. That is what will actually transform the way you approach life and the way you think about God and think about yourself and think about others. It's a massive thing. The mind is a huge battleground. If you want to ask me a question, primarily where does spiritual warfare take place? In the mind. Primarily. Takes place elsewhere, but primarily in the mind. If Satan can get into your mind and get a foothold in there, instead of the Lord's truth and the Lord's word, then he's, he's laughing. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 speaks about strongholds in the mind. And uh, the imagery there is, is in the old days you'd have a city, and then if, and, but you'd have strongholds inside the city, like places of refuge. And if an invading force came and invaded the city, and took it over, the inhabitants would run into the refuge, the stronghold, and lock themselves in there, and then there'd be another battle to get them out of there. Now what's been taught here in 2 Corinthians 10 is this, it's that us as people, when we become Christians, it's like we become conquered by Jesus, we become his property, absolutely. But what often happens is this, is that wrong ways of thinking, unhelpful, unbiblical ways of thinking, then run into 
strongholds in the mind, and so it's like there's, even though we belong to the Lord and we've been won by Him, there are ways of thinking still that are still being often dominated and governed by unbiblical thoughts. And so then there's the battle to pull down those strongholds so that godly truth can be established in our minds. That's the Christian life. That's how it works. And um, so where do we start? Because meditation is massive in this, in this spiritual warfare thing. Where do we start? Well, firstly, meditation is a habit that must be formed. Habits take weeks to form. I don't know what what people say, how many weeks for a habit to form and how many for it to break. Anyone know? 21 for a habit to... 21 days to break a habit. Is it longer to form one? 21 days to make a habit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say 21 to make, 21 to break. I don't, we're not getting much more. We'll say that. I'm sure at this point you're thinking, this guy really knows what he's talking about. I'm really going to take heed here. It takes time to make habits. It takes time to break habits. An example is biting your nails. I've bitten my nails. I can remember biting my nails sitting in a cot. I can remember sitting in a cot biting my nails. Yes. So it's a habit I've had since I was young. I wasn't in the cot as a teenager. So you're wondering, uh, no, I was young, I was little. It has been a huge battle for me to break that habit. Massive. Praise the Lord. We have victory. But huge, huge. Because you get into ingrained ways of doing things and almost like automatic response. If any of you here are now biters, you'll know that you just find yourself doing it. Yeah? It's not like, oh, now I bite my nails. So you just, ah, I'm doing it again. Yeah? Because it's ingrained. Bang. And, and, and part of the Christian life is breaking unhelpful, ungodly habits, ways of thinking, and it's re-establishing and replacing with godly ways of thinking. So, um, habits take time to form and also effort, if you want to get into a habit of doing something. And effort, uh, the effort of slowing down is one of those things to get meditation into place. I'm sorry, it's the worst thing I could have said to a lot of Londoners. But there is something whereby the effort of just slowing down, just for a minute, and it can, you can get a bit of a panic, can't you, when you do that? <laughs> if you're constantly like one of those people that's always running. But to do that, because there's a rest that comes when you learn to meditate, and it's not a rest in terms of stopping activity, but it's a rest that is with you during activity. So you're no longer just flapping about in a frenzy, living life, constantly trying to keep your temper from losing. Constantly trying to, uh, no, there's a rest there, even when you're busy, when you're active. But, the, but meditation is a big deal in that, and we will look at that this morning. We will, I'll teach you how to do that. Um, we're told in the Bible to make every effort to enter God's rest. One of the ways we can do that is by making efforts to meditate and to slow down and to stop and to get into the truth. Many believers can trace their strife back to, um, how can I put it, inappropriate rest, right? So here's what I'm saying. Sometimes a believer can think, right, okay, I need to rest, and so the default is PlayStation, watch a film or whatever. Those things are God's gift and good, so I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Sometimes that's exactly what you need to do. But sometimes it's, it's, it's that we haven't just slowed down and been before the Lord and, and just sunk into his word. And so we watch the movie, and at the end of it, we're just as unrested. Because that wasn't the issue. Yeah? Sometimes that is the issue. But sometimes it's not. And so what I would say is, is that there, there needs to be an effort to slow down and stop and rest in God's word because 
you because you want to live differently. Do you understand what I'm saying? But sometimes there's that initial effort to do that. It doesn't feel very spiritual. We say, no, I'm going to do this now. Um, so what, are the con- what concrete steps can we take? Well, the way I'm going to help you is by looking at questions about meditation and objections and answer them. And then when we get to the end of my list, if there are any more questions from the floor, we'll, we'll take them. But my first thing is, before I get into any questions, this is a practical thing. You get books like Morning by Morning or Evening by Evening by Charles Spurgeon. Or you can get other devotional things. I'm, devotional things. I'm reading one called um, Christian Leadership by A.W. Tozer. Tozer's great. Now here's what happens is there's one little verse at the top and one page of a little, almost thought for the day, but filled with the Holy Spirit. And it takes you literally about two minutes to read. But the idea is this, is that you read it at the start of the day and that verse you throw around as you go through the day. Okay? So it's like you, at the start you hook into this a scripture there, you can read it while you're eating your cereals or whatever, but you just read it, you ponder it, and then, you, and then just throughout the day you bring it back to the front. You bring it back to the front of the mind. That's a habit. It takes time to work that into your life. But what it will do, it will affect your perspective on things. And it's not, it's not overwhelming. It's, just, it's a little thing that, okay, I can do that, and it just starts off and it gets your mind in the right place at the start of the day. So people like Sp- Spurgeon and Tozer always have something to say that's worth listening to. So choose, don't, choose, I would say, they're probably, to my mind, the two best guys. I mean, literally, you can read a page and your spirit goes from there to your soaring. These guys are no God. And it's fantastic. So you can get it from CLC, Amazon, just, you know, um, book depository, just order it or ask for it for Christmas from a relative or whatever, okay, and then start. You can, normally they're 365 days, so it's, they're dated, so you just work. And it's not a hassle, but it just helps you to hook him. Okay, question number one about meditation. Isn't this brainwashing? Yes and no. <laughs> yes from the point of view that your brain gets washed by all kinds of things as you go through the day. So the question isn't so much is it brainwashing, it's what, you, what is your brain being washed by. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Yeah? So you're constantly being bombarded with values, philosophies, ideas, belief systems through the media, through things you read, papers, magazines, um, advertising, people that you work around. We do not exist in a vacuum. So constantly you are being inputted with different value systems. Okay? So the issue isn't so much, isn't brainwashing wrong, it's like, no, are you washing it with the good stuff? So yes, no, from the point of view that it's something you do out of your will. The negative thing often associated with brainwashing is it's a cultic thing where someone gets you in a room and starts, you know, and it's like, oh, man, I, you know, oh, I'm in a trance, I can't stop this. It's not like that. It's something you make a decision. I want to, I want to get God's truth into my mind, and so, it, so no, in the sense that it's something that you do as an act of the will. Um, question number two, can meditating on scripture save me? No. Nothing you can do can save you. Okay? What Jesus did save you. It's not a work, it's not something that God will love you more if you do it. It won't make you more right with God. You're right with God because you're in Christ and he is 100% righteous and because you are hidden in him, you are perfectly accepted before God. Okay, always. Never see these things as a work or a meritorious thing or that somehow God loves you a bit more say, because you read your thing this morning. No, 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 no. But you are really helping yourself. You're helping yourself to live a godly life, to get God's perspective, etc., etc. Okay, so it's not a work of merit at all. You are saved by the grace of God. Hallelujah. Through faith in him who worked for us. Always keep that at the front of your mind. 
Thirdly, does it really work? <laughs> it's a good question. You can think, that sounds good, but does it really work? Yes, but not in a magical way. Okay? It's very, very um, earthy in the sense that you have to make the effort, and some days you won't feel like it, and some days you'll get to the end of the day and you'll think, I read it at the start of the day, and I resolved to throw it around my mind for the, for the whole of the day, and I'm lying in bed, and this is the first time I've done it since breakfast. That's called struggling to form a habit. That's fine, that's natural, okay? The important thing is don't give up, don't lose heart, don't get discouraged. Wake up with fresh vigour the next day, God loves you just as much, yeah? So it does work, but it's not a magical kind of formula thing, but it's just, it, it, uh, it definitely works. You're really just replacing ungodly beliefs and attitudes with God's truth. It's spiritually very powerful. Fourthly, will meditating on scripture solve all your troubles? No. <laughs> it won't. But it will help you to see them differently. It will give you God's perspective on them. One way you could do it is you could do this. You could say to yourself, okay, am I having breakfast? What potential challenge am I going to face today? And it could be something related to, for example, anxiety. And so you go to the back of your Bible if you've got a concordance in the back, or if you know verses on anxiety, and you pick one out, you say, I'm going to meditate on this today. Okay? And it will affect your perspective on the situation that you're facing. Definitely, absolutely. And so what I would say is, is that it doesn't change your problems in one sense, but in another sense it really does, because you see them differently. And how you see your perspective on stuff is massive, isn't it? So, um, and you can find God's direction easier, in the midst of your challenges, you can hear God's voice easier. Here's the biggest trap that charismatics fall into, right? <laughs> here it is. Right, I'm just going to nail it all. If you're here and you're not a charismatic, okay, you are... Graciously excluded. What is a charismatic? A charismatic is a, uh, a Christian who believes that God speaks directly by his spirit into our heart and our mind as well as through the Bible. Okay? So we absolutely believe in the Bible, but charismatic Christians also believe in the gift of prophecy and stuff that God speaks directly into our hearts. Now the biggest mistakes that charismatic Christians like us make is this. We're facing a situation where the Bible gives us clear wisdom and guidance on. Okay? And here's what we do. God, speak to me about this. <laughs> and you bring up your friend. You need to pray and prophesy over me because I'm praising this thing. Friend comes around. <laughs> it's in there. It's in the book. Just read it and obey it. Yeah, it's in the book. Lord, should I be lying to the tax man. <laughs> He's not saying no. No. It's in the book. It's in the book. And if you don't, if you are negligent around your Bible and you just don't bother with it, you end up just living a really silly life sometimes and doing crazy things. And for feeling really spiritual. And it's not. It's really important that you, you, that you just don't fall into that trap. Next question, can those who don't believe meditate on scripture? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that there's plenty worse things you could be doing and it should keep you out of trouble. So, yeah. And God in his mercy may well speak to you through a particular scripture. So if you're here today and you're saying, I'm not sure if I'm a believer or not, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian, or you know for sure, no, I'm not a Christian, but you're thinking to yourself, where, where, what verse would you give me to meditate on? Here's the verse I'd give you to meditate on. If you can get hold of a Bible, go and buy one or borrow one, meditate on the verse, which is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It says this, 
For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Meditate on that. Think about that. Pray. Even if you say, well, I'm not sure I even know God. Just pray and say, God, if you're there, show me what this means. And God in his mercy may well do that. But in a sense, I wouldn't encourage people who don't believe to just make a real habit of meditating on Scripture because the Bible says that these are the spiritual truths and they can't be understood by the natural mind. So naturally, it doesn't make, it doesn't really, it's, some people pull out principles and even you find people that aren't Christians write books with biblical principles and yeah, that will go a certain distance, you know, because there's wisdom in there. But actually, the Apostle Paul says really clearly, you need to have the Holy Spirit to be able to understand spiritual things. And so your priority is to come to know the Lord so that you can understand the book by the power of the Holy Spirit. Next question, how does this differ from other forms of meditation? How does Bible meditation differ from yoga meditation, differ from Buddhist meditation, for example? Okay, well, yogic meditation, for example, involves emptying the mind, and the ideal there is to reach another state of consciousness, which the climax is called kundalini arousal, arousal, which basically means this, that you're sitting there and you've... (laughs) Sounds very rude, doesn't it? I know. I know. And basically, the climax of it is this, is, is that you sense, you sense a serpent climbing up your spine, and then it stops there. Yeah, that is, that you can read that, that is the climax of the yogic experience. It's no mistake that in the Bible, Satan is uh, represented as a serpent. I would absolutely say that yoga is an unhealthy thing. That's controversial, even in Christian circles today. Emptying your mind, emptying your mind as a spiritual practice is dangerous because you open yourself up to the demonic. Absolutely. Bible meditation is filling your mind with God's truth. It's a completely different thing. It's the opposite. You're saying, I submit to God's truth here. This is the word of God, the revelation of God. I'm going to fill my mind with this wonderful stuff and let it do me the world of good. Totally different. Again, Buddhist meditation, chanting, you say, well, you said murmuring, meditation means murmuring, this is chanting, what's the difference? The difference is the content. And there's such a lack of discernment out there today that no one even talks about this issue of content. You've got to ask yourself, what is the content of what you're meditating and focusing on? Because if it's Buddhist principles, they are anti-Christian. They're humanistic. Buddhism in a nutshell says you've got it within yourself to do it. Christianity in a nutshell says you haven't. They're opposites. And so many discernment here. It's a very different thing I'm talking about with Christian meditation. Christians avoid trying to get themselves into altered states of consciousness. Now, the Holy Spirit can and does come upon people sometimes and give them a vision or put them in a trance. You see it biblically, it does happen. But we don't chase after that. Christians are happy being conscious and fully awake and normal before God because God has made them humans. And this is another difference with Eastern spirituality. There's this kind of um, despising of the natural, despising of the physical, despising of um, just being normal. And actually Christian spirituality is very different from that. Christian spirituality is very, very comfortable with enjoying food and drink, with enjoying sex, within marriage, with enjoying life. That's Christian spirituality. Fully human, but totally godly. 
that is Christians. Beware these things, because they sneak in in a subtle way. Next question. I don't enjoy the Bible, but I want to. What should I do? How can I change this? It kind of depends on what the issue is. It could be that your taste buds have been adversely affected by a poor diet for a long time. If you eat chocolate all the time, and then you stop that, and have a week of fruit, that fruit will be completely dissatisfactory. Anyone experience that? <laughs> yeah? You eat it, and you're like, is that it? And you start dreaming of Twixes and other things. Yeah? What's happened there is your taste buds have become accustomed to chocolate. And unless there's chocolate in the meal, it doesn't feel like a proper meal. Yeah, that's what happens. And so, but what I would say is this, if you push on with that, within two or three weeks, you'll be loving those satsumas. <laughs> you will be. Why? Because your taste buds have been changed back. If you've not been into the Bible for a long time and you try and pick it up, you may well think, that was a bit, that was a bit nothingy. Alright, go again. And it might feel the same. Go again. You're changing your spiritual taste buds. Getting back to a good diet. Takes discipline, takes devotion, takes effort. You want to grow in God? Takes effort. You thought, I thought it was by grace. It is by grace. It's all by grace. Absolutely. But God works with us as people. He just does. So that could be the issue there. Um, or it could be that you don't know where to start. Uh, numbers of people, like, they just say, it's just too big. <laughs> I don't know where to start. And so they start at the beginning, which normally they think is a good idea because Genesis is narrative. You've got all kinds of things going on. You've got wars. You've got um, supernatural things going. You've got Joseph in his Technicolor dream coat. You're thinking, yeah, I'm laughing here. Then you get Exodus. All right, no problem. We've got the plagues. We've got the Red Sea. Yeah, we've got the measurements of the tabernacle. <laughs> Five weeks later. You know. And then you've got the lists. So-and-so, son of so-and-so. And it all goes wrong. You've got to know how to read your Bible. I would suggest that you start reading one of the Gospels. Mark or John are probably the easiest to read and most, um, just less hard work than Matthew and Luke. And just get the Bible, get, get Jesus. Just take a month in one of the Gospels. Get, or just read the biography of Jesus. Just get, in, get into that. And then after that, I would say, come and speak to someone in church you know, and they can point you somewhere else and just help you get into the good stuff. And one day you'll get to Exodus, and you'll get to Numbers and all that, and it'll be fine, and it'll be manageable, because you've learned how to... But it's a skill, it takes time and effort to learn. Um, so you just need some advice, and um, go for that, okay? What if you find reading really hard? You just think, I'm just totally dyslexic, you know, or I just get the Bible on audio. In my day, it was cassettes. <laughs> it's not cassettes anymore, is it? It's not even CDs anymore, probably. It's digital. Get it. And listen to it. Faith comes by. Yeah. Now, the early church probably didn't have their own copy of the Bible. In that sense. They definitely didn't have the New Testament, did they? So we think, well, how, did they, how were they devoted? Well, their lifestyle was very different to ours. So they would, as part of the day, you'd go to the temple. It's just what you did. But they would hear a lot. They would so download sermons, listen to them whether they're the ones you've missed from Revelation, or other good ones out there, John Piper from DesiringGod.com, Mark Driscoll, MarsHill.org, great preachers that will just feed you. I know many of you are being pastored by Mark Driscoll as well as by me. I'm happy with that. I like what he says, that's fine. 
Um, but be discerning, even that he's, even, he's not perfect, okay? He's a mighty man of God, but he's not perfect, so be discerning. But, you know, that's fine. We're in that day and age. Use these resources to feed and to feed and to feed. Finally, how does this link with faith? How does this link with faith? Because we've been doing a series on faith, and I know the series has stopped now, but obviously we still want to keep pressing on on faith. It links in vitally with faith. The verse we just looked at, Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing. That's how it comes. And so constantly put yourself in the way of Scripture so you can receive faith from the Lord. Faith for your situation. Faith for what God's called us to as a church. Faith for the mountains that need moving, the challenges that we're facing. We constantly need faith, so get into the Bible. Okay, any other questions? I'm meditating on scripture. I'll answer them and then I will conclude quickly. I think we need to be confident. I mean, how do you, you know how do you balance up waiting on God to hear prophetically and reading the Bible? I think there's just what I would say is, is you just be looking to have a healthy mix of both in your life. And when any, whenever anything prophetic comes, you weigh it against Scripture. That's vital. <laughs> Otherwise, you get people to get in a real pickle. I mean, a real pickle. You know, and get bound up, bound up in stuff. And you think, how did you get into this mess? And it, you point it back to a prophecy. You think, oh. If only someone had been alongside you to just say, look, that's not probably from the Lord. Or maybe some of it is because you prophesy in part, but some of that you need to just pull away. It's meat and bones there <laughs> to pull that away because it's not going to help you. So it's ever so important that you're in the Word so that you can handle prophecy well. So what I would say is this primarily look to be hearing from God from the Scripture. And I think very often prophecy confirms things. And, do you know what I mean? And, 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 and that, but I think we, if, we, if we're rooted in the Word, we can, we can run with prophecy. We haven't got to be all funny and nervous about it because we're rooted in the Word. Yeah? So... <laughs> it hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> I did it the other way, don't worry. <laughs> they don't charge us any extra for breaking chairs, which is great. Um, so, uh, we're rooted in the Word and then you can handle the prophetic. Is that okay? Anything else? Mary. Do we, you mean on a Sunday? In my reading, I, what I do is, for example, I've just finished reading Jeremiah. I'm now reading Philippians, but I don't, I don't, let, I don't make it so that I get hemmed in in a legalistic way into that. So I took ages on Jeremiah because in the middle of it, I really felt that I was being quickened with some. God was dealing with some things in my life, and I needed to meditate on certain scriptures I knew that were elsewhere. So I just there, but I kept my bookmark in Jeremiah. So then I went back to it and I made my way through it. So I, I think it's always good to have a book on the go. Yeah, that way, you, if you're not feeling inspired, you just know where to go. <laughs> I'll just go there, you know. No leading, you know, just go, just go there, carry on reading it. But I think, but I think what, you, what, you, what you do want, though, is those sort of nuggets and those gems that you can always go and just press into. You know what I mean? Really mull over as well. So that's how I would work it, a bit of both. Anything else? Sarah. Yes.
So, yeah, okay, I think I understand what you're saying. So, altered states of consciousness and Christians and drink and drugs? What was why can Christians drink but not have some drugs? Okay, that's a good point. Um, I think the bottom line at the moment is there's the issue of the law. I think there is that. I think, I think the question is, is that, so we believe in this church, just so you know, we believe in this church that the Bible doesn't say that alcohol is wrong, it says it's wrong to get drunk. Okay? I think that's clear biblically, so that's, that's the line we would take. Um, obviously the Bible doesn't say much about hash and marijuana and whatever. Do you know what I mean? So, okay, so you have to just take principles... So to my mind, people that I know that smoke joints, why do they do it? They do it to relax. That's why they smoke joints, to relax. Yeah? So the implication is they weren't relaxed before. I think, well, I think, I think in the sense of, when I say to relax, it's not in the sense of that would be a nice social thing to do, but in the sense of um, getting the anxiety levels down. I think if a Christian drinks to get anxiety levels down, it's a problem. Absolutely. You've got, to know, you've got to know yourself. Why am I drinking now? It's like, why am I watching this film now? Yeah, it could be false comfort. You need to, be, you need to just go take something to the Lord. Do you, do you know what I mean? So, why am I, so I think it's why we're, why we're doing these things. So there's the law issue, but I think there's also... Why, and I've never met... Any, uh, people I know that, that, that smoke the joints is either because they're now addicted, because it is addictive, absolutely. They're now addicted, then they just need another joint. Whack, whack. Okay? Or... <laughs> Or they're anxious and they want some peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Yeah? So he's a false god. It's idolatry. That's what I would say on that. I can enjoy a glass of wine over a meal. I'll go out and have a, a pint of beer with someone. I'm just as, just as clear-minded afterwards. So I won't have more than a pint. And be like, oh, you can't take your drink. No, I know I can't. Yeah? So I'm not going to have two pints and try and prove myself. I can't. Yeah? If I have two pints, my mind will just get a little bit... A bit just a bit dull or I don't want that, that's not, that doesn't glorify the Lord. Yeah? So, I'll have no, I'll, I won't have any, I'll never have more than a pint of beer. But I'll enjoy it, I'll enjoy the taste, I, I, I like it. But it doesn't help my nerves. Yeah? If I started finding it was helping my nerves, I would cut out all drink. Does that help? Okay. Anything else? Okay, well, I'll just conclude. Whatever happens, we want this church to be what it says it is on the tin, yeah? We, what we're saying on the tin is this, we want to get back to the Bible basics. The Bible basics of the church are devoted to the scriptures. So let's be devoted corporately, and what I mean, what I mean by this is that when someone preaches, it's not just going to be happy thoughts, it's going to be the Bible, okay? But be devoted to the Bible individually in the way that you live. All I can do is exalt you and urge you to do that for the glory of God and for your good. I can't force you or make you. I'm trying to give you the tools, all the tools that I can. There are Bible studies on the Light Time and More table that I've bought. They're good Bible study guides. If you want to get started, take one of those and stick a few quid in the offering. Okay? But let's, let's do all we can to live out what we say we are. Um, the UK does not need more spiritual hypocrisy and smooth talk. It needs authentic, Bible-immersed, Holy Spirit-inspired, Christ-like communities who are genuinely working out how to love God and how to love one another. That will make a difference. Yeah? So that's what we want to be. Okay, I'm going to finish just by reading that little beautiful thing from Psalm 1 again. If the band would like to come up, that would be great. We're going to break bread. Thanks, man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Guys, 
The reason why we are able to even be talking about this and saying, yeah, we want to do this is because we've been saved by the grace of God. The reason why we've been saved by the grace of God is that God in his mercy gave his one and only son to die for us. Amen? Gave his one and only son to die for us and to pour out his life for us. We're going to break bread and take the wine, do that during this first song. If you're a believer, if if you're in unrepentant sin, I would just ask you to please repent. Or if you're not willing to do that, please don't take the bread and the wine today. Okay, let it, don't come up and take it, just leave it be. Get right with God. So, so important to keep short accounts with God. If you're out of relationship with another brother or sister, put it right as best you can. Sometimes it's impossible, but as best you can, put it right. So that we're taking the bread and the wine in a, in a, in a worthy manner. If you're not a believer and you want to become a believer, now's a great chance to just start your journey with the Lord by going and taking the bread to remind, to remember his body broken for you, to drink the wine, to remember his blood shed for you for your sins so you could be forgiven. Um, but if you don't want to become a Christian today, today's not the day, that's fine. We'd ask you again to sit out the bread and wine. It has no magical powers, okay, simply by taking it. It's an act of faith that we do for those of us who are following Jesus. Is that okay? Great, good stuff. Over to the band.